So, as you may or may not know, I am Eli the Computer Guy, and INE has brought me down here to Durham, North Carolina to do a number of interviews this week. And right now we're going to be interviewing Keith Bogart, one of their instructors, a CCIE level um, person. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. So it's good to talk with you. So you work down here at INE? Yep. I've been here for uh, almost two years at this point. Two years. Two yeah. years. Okay. So what brought you to INE in the beginning? Uh, actually, they they came to me. It's actually kind of a funny story because back when I worked at Cisco in the, uh, the training organization there, INE was well known at Cisco. I'm sure it is still is today. I mean, people pretty much knew when I worked there that if you wanted CCIE training, the yeah. best CCIE training, INE is where you went. Really? So I had okay. actually heard of it, yeah. never really thought I'd work here, yeah. um, but I left Cisco, I worked for another company, and while I was working for that other company, um, someone from INE approached me, and they said, yeah. hey, we'd like to uh, have you come on board. Oh, okay, cool. So what makes uh, INE is the best? Like, why, why, why is INE considered good? I think a lot of that, there's a lot of factors to that. Uh, number one, the technical knowledge of the instructors. Um, every instructor has at least one CCIE, if not more. Um, but technical knowledge alone doesn't make for good training. Okay. So all the instructors also, in my opinion, and I've, I've watched them all, I, I think have really great presentation skills. Yeah. Uh, they don't talk too fast, they don't talk too slow, they have the ability to give real world examples, yeah. uh, which brings the technology to life and it makes it stick in your brain a little bit more if you can sort of visualize how people are using this and why they might use it. Yeah. Um, in addition to that, um, it isn't just one PowerPoint slide after another for five hours, you actually get a lot of demonstrations. Okay. So in addition to talking about something, they'll show you, okay, here's how you actually get it to work. Here's how you troubleshoot, and you actually see the screen as they're typing commands. So it, it really helps to bring everything into focus with that type of style. Oh, interesting. So wait, so multiple CCIEs? I thought you could only get one CIE. I thought you CCIE. No, no? there's a... Uh, there I don't know, I think it was like six or seven at this point, you can really? get maybe even more than that. Yeah, or originally it started with just one, yeah. the routing and switching, CCIE. Yeah, yeah. Um, but even as early as the mid-1990s, I think they had three or four specialties back then. And yeah. now they've got like five or six. Most people typically start with the routing and switching CCIE, although you don't have to. Huh, yeah. uh, and then for those people who are motivated and who want to get two or three or four, then they'll branch off and get some of the other ones. So we're going I can't imagine getting my own CCIE, but like when you say two or three or four, like is it the same is it the same horrible testing process for yeah. each one? Or same is it just horrible. like an additional, oh, here's another two hours? No, that, no? if it was like that, I'd have three or four myself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, no, it is truly horrible. It is truly <laughs> yeah, horrible. Yeah, each, wow. each one requires you to take a written exam, yeah. uh, which is, you know, multiple choice. Um, and then each one also requires a lab exam. Uh, which is, you know, typically at least a day long, which will take years off your life and take hair <laughs> off your head by the time you're done. Yeah. And hardly anybody ever passes the lab exam on the first try, regardless of which CCIE they're pursuing. Yeah. So, yeah, you have to be a very special and unique person to want to get more than one of these. <laughs> so what, what is the benefit, like, how do you decide two or three or four? Is it like your boss comes to you and says, you need this, or are you just a masochist? I, I mean, think for what? a lot of people, it's just <laughs> their personality type. You know, there's, there's yeah. for example, you know, what, what's the difference between a person who graduates with a bachelor's degree, and for them, that's enough, yeah. versus the person who says, I want to get my doctorate. 
Now, yeah. clearly, if you're getting a medical profession, but you know, the person who gets a doctorate in sociology as opposed to the person who got a bachelor's degree, why did they take it to that extreme? Yeah. You know? So I think a lot of it's the same. I think um, you know, there's a certain level of pride and respect that comes along with the more CCIEs you have. Uh, it's yeah. assumed that you're a lot more smarter than somebody with just one or possibly two. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think there's just some people out there that are really driven. Yeah. Uh, they, they enjoy the challenge, they enjoy the process, and they sort of like you know, going to Las Vegas and pulling that slot machine and getting that winning number. It's like that rush of, oh wow, I actually got a second <laughs> one, I got a third one. Jeez. So does it, like professionally, I mean, you know, there, there's professionally, obviously, the more expert you are, the better you are. Mm -hmm. But when you talk about things like salary and promotions and all that, does it help you that much to have additional ones? I, I've, I've seen numbers that says it does. Yeah. I, you know, I've, there, I've seen statistics that say that certainly, you know, uh, in CCNA will get paid a certain average salary, NP and IE, and then double, triple IEs get more and more and more. Now. Yeah. Realistically, out there in the world, I, I don't know if that actually comes to play. Yeah, um, yeah. It, for If there was a company out there that was hiring for a position and they said, we need a double CCIE or we need a triple CCIE, they would probably be waiting a while before yeah. they found somebody. Because although those, although those people exist, yeah. they're in such high demand mm -hmm. that they can pretty much pick and choose what types of you know, engineering jobs that they want to do. So do people then, because I mean, you know, it's really easy to think Cisco is the entire world, but really, they, they actually only own like 60%, right, in the networking market. Yeah. So is it really better to go for like a second or third CCIE or go for Juniper or some other network certification? Or do you, do you want to be just Cisco, you know? How, how do you think about that? I guess a lot of that depends on which you think personally is more valuable to you. Okay. Um, some people would say, well, yeah, I've, I've got you know, my, I went all the way up to the CCIE, maybe I got two of them. And some people would say that's really valuable because yeah, even though I don't have hands-on experience with Juniper or, you know, some of these other companies, Extreme, Foundry, whatever, yeah. because I'm at this level, those devices still run a lot of the same features and protocols that the Cisco devices do. Yeah. So even though I might not know the command line of those devices, if I know how these features and protocols work to that expert level, yeah. learning the command line isn't that hard. But learning the features and the protocols and how they work, that's a lot of times a lot more complex yeah. and goes a lot deeper than learning a command line. Yeah. And then other people would say, well, you know, it's if I have a Cisco certification and a Juniper certification and a, yeah. you know, Microsoft Systems Engineer certification, that proves that I won't have to spend a lot of time learning these various different command lines because I already know. I already know these different products. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it just depends on which side of the fence that you're on. So in the real world, do you see a lot of mix and match? Like would a Cisco person run into Juniper equipment very often? Or are, do, are people pretty vendor uh, strict with what um, I think most I think most companies do have a mix. Uh, it might not be you know, a totally even mix. I think a lot of companies out there are heavy on the Cisco stuff. Yeah. Um, but I think most companies do have a, other things besides Cisco as well. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So I have your, your resume here, getting to look through, seeing, seeing how you've progressed. So you've been with doing this stuff for 20 years. Now the first thing is, so you're a CCIE emeritus. Mm -hmm. So what does the emeritus mean then? Emeritus means that you, uh, at least the last time I checked, uh, you need to have been an active 
CCIE for at least 10 years. Okay. Uh, and to be an active CCIE, that means that once you actually get your original CCIE past the lab and all that stuff, yeah. then every two years you have to recertify by taking the written test again and again and again. So you have to have gone through that process for 10 years. Yeah. And, um, and then after that 10 year point, you have a choice. Uh, you could continue to stay active by yeah. taking that test every two years and recertifying, or you can go into emeritus state, which yeah. means, okay, I don't have to take the test anymore. Um, emeritus says that you believe you are still knowledgeable in this field, yeah. uh, that you still participate in the technology in some way, but Cisco is no longer testing you on that to yeah. prove it. Huh. But if you wanna go from emeritus back to active, yeah. then at minimum you have to retake the written test. So, now I know this comes up like with all these certifications, and the nice thing, like I always say, I'm an MCSE NT4, and I don't care, right? <laughs> so like with the CCIE, and that's what you see with a lot of people with CCNAs, is people talk about having to recertify. And at least with CCNA, and I've even seen with CCNA, CCNP level, most bosses really don't care. If you got it, that's good enough and they consider mm -hmm. it good forever. Yeah. Like as a CCIE, can you reasonably just get the CCIE and then walk away and not, not recertify? Like is it really that important to recertify every two years? I think that would just really depend on your employer. Yeah. And, and what your employer's priorities are. Okay. I'm sure there are some, for example, uh, and I think we were talking about this a little bit earlier, that, that one of the reasons why some employers want CCIEs yeah. is because they can achieve a certain status, like gold, silver, platinum status with Cisco, yeah. which gives them certain entitlements, like bigger discounts. Yeah. Uh, maybe they get to the front of the queue and they have a, a troubleshooting ticket they need to open. Okay. And so for those companies, they need to keep their CCIEs active and re-certify them every two years so they can maintain that status with Cisco. Yeah. Other companies that that's not a priority for them, they might not care. You know, they might just be happy saying, okay, we have a CCIE on staff and yeah. they don't bother telling anybody that, well, he hasn't recertified for the last six years, but he still was a CCIE. <laughs> <laughs> so then with your emeritus status, mm -hmm. does that count towards gold, silver, platinum level? I don't know. The company? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if it does. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay. Okay. So, huh, interesting. Now then here, that's what I don't understand. So I'm looking at the, your, your, your thing, and first I thought it was a typo, and then apparently it's not a typo. Because it says you got your CCIE, what the hell does it say here? You got your CCIE in 1999, mm -hmm. but then, but then, it's your CCNA in 2001, and your CWNA in 2014. Yeah. And at first I thought that was just a massive typo because how the hell do you get your CCNA two years after you get your CCIE? <laughs> that doesn't even, that, what? Like how does, how does that work out? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so that's kind of an interesting <laughs> story. So uh, at least back then in 1999, I think it's still the case today, yeah. uh, for the CCIE there was no prerequisite that if you wanted to, you could go from zero to hero. You could go right into the CCIE, and if you passed the written, if you passed the lab, yeah. you were an IE without having had gone through the NA and the NP steps. And I, I think it's still like that. Mm. Um, I haven't checked in a while. And my particular story was that uh, when I started at Cisco, I was in customer service. Okay. So I wasn't technical at all. Yeah. Um, I took issues related to sales, like sales orders that had the wrong discount or sales orders where they were trying to put a particular module into a particular chassis and they didn't work together. Mm -hmm. And so my job was when those issues would arise, they would bring it to me and I would call up the sales guy or girl and I'd say, here's the issue. Mm -hmm. um, how are we going to work this out? And I did that for about a year and a half. And then while I was doing that, um, 
I was motivated, and we can talk more about this if you want to, but I went into the Technical Assistance Center. Yeah. Um, and at that time, the team I was in, in the TAC, uh, there was a big push to get CCIEs. And they, I think they were giving pretty significant bonuses. I think you were getting like a two or $3,000 bonus or something for getting your CCIE within the TAC. Yeah. And so I started in the TAC and I knew pretty much nothing about networking at all, hardly knew anything even about laptops or windows because I really hadn't had to use it for college. Um, tells you how old I am. And, and um, you know, within six months, all these people around me were getting their CCIEs. And, you know, every couple of weeks you hear all sorts of cheering and, hey, George over there got his CCIE. And, hey, you know, Raphael over there got his. And so there was this peer pressure to get your IE. Yeah. Um, and so I was sort of swept up in that. Um, and so, you know, within six months of being in the TAC, I just buried my head in the books, did all sorts of lab recreations, mm -hmm. and I got my IE as well. Wait, so six months? Yeah. Because I've been in this since about that time period, and even back then, I knew people that would say, give me five years and I can get you to CCIE. <laughs> Is that just, did you just, how do you do that? Like, like, did you just have, like, was it lab equipment there? Like, like well, I, it was, it was a unique, you know, for an actual Cisco TAC engineer, yeah. they have a very unique and privileged position in that they are actually day in and day out taking cases in these technologies. Okay. Um, so, you know, for, for a regular engineer working at a company yeah. on any given day, they might be installing a server. They might be updating a database here. They might get to a router on Friday, you know, but they're not, <laughs> eight, nine, 10 hours a day working on Cisco, Cisco, Cisco over and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, but a TAC engineer, they are. And hmm. you know, in the TAC, you do have access to all kinds of equipment. Wow. Um, so, and it's encouraged that if you have the time between cases, if you manage to catch up and you've got time, it's encouraged that you pursue your education, that you practice hmm. on the lab and you learn new stuff. Yeah. So because it's all Cisco all the time and that's your job, yeah, yeah. it makes it much easier to get these certifications in a much quicker time frame than somebody else would probably take. I would, I would imagine, holy crap. <laughs> I didn't even think that was possible to be honest. Okay, yeah. so then, okay, but you get your CCI 99, mm -hmm. then why, like why bother with your CCNA at all? The reason I got the CCNA was because, uh, so I was in the TAC for a little less than two years. Okay. And that was in their uh, San Jose, California campus. And then uh, my ex-wife and I moved out to Raleigh and when I moved out to Raleigh, I changed jobs to become a network consulting engineer at Cisco. So instead okay. of taking troubleshooting cases, now I was in a position where I had like two or three companies that were my companies and they would come to me for like design advice or sometimes troubleshooting stuff. Mm -hmm. And back then, there was a non-technical role called an operations relationship manager. Okay. And what these people did at Cisco was they would be, a, so like for example, if, if you're a company, just like anybody else, you, you can pay for certain levels of service at Cisco, right? The bottom level is you bought a product with a certain warranty and you can submit a case and you're like at the bottom of the queue, right? Yeah, and yeah. you know, just stay on the phone for an hour until they get to you. Yeah. But then certain levels up from there and at certain levels, you could pay and you'd have an operations relationship manager, an ORM. Okay. And so what that person did was when you had open cases, 
they would kind of monitor it for you. They didn't really know the technical details of the case, mm -hmm. but they could see, you know, if a case was open for a day and then two days, they could see if the TAC had called you back once or twice or never, they could read the notes. Mm -hmm. And so they would sort of like look at the case and if they thought there was something going wrong with it or if it looked like the customer was getting frustrated or things were taking too long, they would be like the mediator between the customer and the TAC yeah. and try to get things moving. So how that related to me was initially the ORMs, when they created that job, they didn't need to be technical. It was more like personal skills and, and looking at the cases and stuff. Yeah. But then within a short amount of time, they started saying, hey, these ORMs will be more valuable to Cisco if they at least have a CCNA level of knowledge. Because then when they're looking at cases, some of these words they're seeing yeah. will make sense to them. Whereas right now they might see something like BGP or CDP and say, I have no idea what that stands for. Yeah. But if they know some of these things, it makes them a little bit more helpful to the customer. Okay. So there was a push for that. And at that point in time, my sister yeah. was working at Cisco. Now I'm in Raleigh, <laughs> she's back in San Jose and she's an ORM. Okay, yeah. And she told me how back there in San Jose, that one of the TAC engineers, yeah. I think it was a TAC engineer, had volunteered his time on like the lunch breaks yeah. to teach a group of these ORMs CCNA stuff. Okay. And I thought, that's a great idea. Yeah. I mean they need somebody like that. So, so I knew a few of the ORMs in Raleigh mm -hmm. and I went to them. I said, Hey, if, if you guys want, I would love to help you out with this, you know, spend my lunch breaks, you know, maybe an hour or two in the afternoon and just go into a conference room and, and learn some of this stuff. Yeah. And so they said, sure. And so as I started doing that, I, I realized, well, if I'm teaching them CCNA level stuff, I know the technology because yeah. I got my CCIE, <laughs> but I don't have the cert. I don't know specifically what kinds of questions they're going to get, how deep or narrow the questions will be. So I should probably get my CCNA so I can actually teach them stuff at the NA level. I don't want to accidentally teach them stuff they don't really need to know that's too deep or too light. So that's, that's why I got my NA. Uh, interesting. And then just in 2014, then you got your CWNA. So yeah. why, why that one? That's not a Cisco cert. Uh, that even oh, starts with a C. Oh, yeah. oh that's yeah, a certified that's wireless way. network administrator. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. at that point in time, I was working for a, a Wi-Fi company as uh, a technical okay. instructor and content developer. And in order to you know get more knowledgeable on Wi-Fi technologies, I got that certification. Okay. Yeah. So do you feel secure? Because that's one of the things. Like even with the the old timers with certifications, mm -hmm. is things are just changing so much. It's like. It's that weird thing, who knows why, but if you've yeah. got your master's or your PhD, you have that for life. Mm -hmm. You get it when you're 20, it's yeah. still a PhD when you're 90. True. CCIE, you don't recertify in two years and mm -hmm. you essentially don't have it. So like, do you, do you feel comfortable with a CCIE? Do you feel like with a CCIT emeritus that this is still good for another decade? You don't really have to stress? Well, the great thing is, is a couple of answers to that. Mm -hmm. uh, so number one, well, you are correct that with, with networking technology, there's always new hardware coming out, always new protocols being invented and developed. Yeah. Um, there's a huge base of knowledge you still have to know to even understand the new stuff. Yeah. Um, for example, let's just take uh, one protocol. Let's take the border gateway protocol, BGP, as yeah. an example, a routing protocol. So regardless of what CCIE you get, regardless of what technology looks like now or five or 10 years from now, yeah. the border gateway protocol will probably always be there. Yeah. It'll probably always be the protocol that service providers use to route between themselves. And just BGP by itself will take you weeks 
of constant study to learn the depths of it. And that's just one protocol. So there's, there's so much to know at just the foundation that will never change that's so complex that there's always something new to learn. There's always more depth you can go into. So you know, there's, there's people out there that specialize in stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So like, you know, they may be specialized in security or, or Wi-Fi. And for them, it's really important to know the latest Wi-Fi RF technology or know the latest, you know, security appliance that, came, that comes out because uh, their managers expect them to know that, right? They want to stay on top of technology. They want to make sure they've got the most secure firewall, the, the best Wi-Fi access point. And if they're not reading the marketing materials and reading the, the data sheets and stuff that's coming out, they won't know what is the latest and greatest. Yeah. Um, but for someone in my position who's an instructor, yeah. people come to me because they need to get that base of knowledge, which yeah. is still huge. Yeah. Um, and like I said, because it's so huge, I'm always finding new areas within that base of knowledge where I can learn myself. Okay. I mean, even with, for example, with BGP, you know, I've been teaching the Border Gateway Protocol for at least 10 or 12 years at this yeah. point, probably closer to 15. And I still find new things about just that protocol. Really? Yeah, That's so uh, it's always a learning experience for me, even though I'm not up to date on the latest and greatest of everything that's coming out. Yeah. And then the final thing with the CCIE part, at least. So when you're saying that you re-up, so every two years, mm -hmm. how many hours do you figure it takes of studying to, to prepare for that? You know, I've heard a lot of people um, minimize the, the complexity and difficulty of the CCIE written. Mm. There's a lot of emphasis on how hard the CCIE lab is. Mm -hmm. But my experience has been the CCIE written is no piece of cake. Um, because <laughs> if, if you open up the blueprint yeah. that Cisco gives you, it says, okay, here's all the things you could possibly be tested on for just the written. Yeah. It's huge. And as anybody who's ever taken a Cisco test knows, Cisco has the authority, if they want to, yeah. to even test you on stuff that's not in the blueprint. Really? Um, yeah. So there is a, a lot of stuff to know, and it covers such a, let's just take routing and switching as an example, a CCI routing and switching exam. Yeah. The written exam for that covers such a broad range of technologies, a lot of stuff that you won't even see in the lab. Uh, mm -hmm. There's more technologies that you have to know at the protocol level for the written yeah. than you have to know for the lab. Uh, the lab expects you to know greater depth about how to actually implement it and configure it. But for the written, there's such a broad range of things to know that um, it's, it's tough. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in, in my experience, for example, even when I, when I was in Cisco, um, I didn't teach all that stuff every day, right? There was just, there's no way anybody could know all that stuff all the time. Yeah. Uh, so I think what <laughs> is a common experience with most CCIEs yeah is that as they're preparing for this stuff, they'll be heads down, they'll be creating flashcards for themselves, they'll be uh, doing online tests, and so by the time they actually take their written exam, yeah. they know all this stuff, at least to the level that needed to pass that exam. Yeah. But then if you go back to that person two months later, if you tested them, they would probably fail. <laughs> because at that point, it's like, okay, I'm not gonna keep looking at these flashcards every single day, yeah, there's yeah. so much stuff, so, for that, uh, yeah, so when you need to recertify for the written, for me personally, it's, mm -hmm. it's always been uh, at least a good three, four months of study. Really? Yeah. Holy. Yeah. Because wow. a lot of the stuff is stuff I've forgotten, you know, that I didn't see for the last two years. Yeah. yeah. 
Were there, were there any special tools or practices you use, like flashcards or what is there something that, that you found was, was more or less effective for studying for that kind of thing? Um, I've heard, and I believe this to be true, that, that the most effective learning is where you can involve the most amount of your senses as possible. Okay. Um, and so, and what I, you know, people come to me a lot of times, they'll send me emails and they'll ask me, how would you recommend I prepare for this? What should I do? Mm -hmm. And I typically always tell them the same thing. I say, okay, number one, you're going to want to involve as many of your senses as you can. Now, clearly you can't involve the taste of, you know, sense of taste or smell when you're studying for your CCIE. Mm -hmm. But I say, for example, you know, videos, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that's, and, and reading something, that's your, your vision. So <laughs> you're, you're doing that. In videos, you're involving your sense of hearing. Yeah. Um, doing the lab work, yeah. now you're involving the sense of touch as you're doing the keyboard and stuff like this. Um, so I usually tell people, mix it up. Yeah. I say, you can't pass any certification just by watching videos. You'll always have to read documentation, yeah. uh, whether it be books or RFCs or data sheets or stuff. And I say, and for myself, as I'm reading things or as I'm watching a video, I will frequently pause and make a flashcard, you know, like in, just a little four by six card and I'll, think of uh, a question for myself, and then I'll write the answer on the back. Yeah. And so by the time, for example, if I'm watching a video, by the time I'm done with that 15 or 20 minute video, I've probably got 10, 15, 20 flashcards I've created just for that. Okay. And then I usually recommend people don't go on to the next subject, don't go on to the next video until you can go through your own flashcards mm -hmm. and get at least 80% of them right. And then you know you've got that sort of down, now go on to the next. But keep those old flashcards because by the time you're ready, you'll have like this set. And you should be able to pick and pull anything from your flashcards and get it right almost 100% of the time. I also recommend to people, and I also do this even at the CCNA and the CCNP level. Uh, because the CCNA and the CCNP, they don't have any lab components. It's just a written exam. It's just multiple choice. But within those exams, you have like simulations where you'll, you'll, it looks like you're logging onto a router or you're logging onto a switch and you're trying to configure something. So of a, of a 60 question exam, you might get anywhere from a minimum of three to maybe seven of those simulations. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people go into those exams thinking, okay, well during my study time, I'm really gonna emphasize the watching the videos, the reading of stuff, the creating the flashcards. And when I can get to lab work, if I can get to any equipment or something to practice, I will, but that's gonna be secondary. But my experience has been, it's actually the hands-on time that reinforces what you learn. Okay. Like a lot of times when I'm reading something, I might read something that says, okay, for this, this pr protocol I've never learned before, uh, in order for this device to learn about this device and for them to communicate, mm -hmm. certain messages have to go back and forth and certain things have to match. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, okay, here's the configuration commands to get it to work. And at that point in time, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll stop. Yeah. I'll get on my equipment, I'll say, okay, I wanna make this work. And not only do I wanna configure it like the book says, yeah. but what happens if I intentionally configure it wrong? Mm -hmm. What happens if I intentionally leave something out? If I do debug question mark, what are the various debugs available to me that match this protocol? So I really wanna see it with yeah. my own eyes and, and practice it. And to me, that really reinforces the technology. Even at the CCNA level, I think it's invaluable uh, to do that. So I know, I know INE, if you sign up for the thing, you have like the physical labs, but I guess there's a lot of simulators out there. Is mm -hmm. there a simulator you prefer or one that you would point people to if they wanted to do that? I really like uh, GNS3. 
GNS3. Yeah, I really like GNS3 um, because for one reason, GNS3 is an emulator, not yeah. a simulator. And, and what that means in practical terms is a lot of these simulators, and I, I won't name any names, <laughs> but basically what they are is they're, they're packages of software that were written to sort of pretend like they're Cisco software. It's not yeah. real Cisco software, but it kind of looks like it. Uh, but the downside to this is when you're using those programs, certain commands won't be there because they just didn't write it into the code. Yeah, uh, the output you see from a certain command won't exactly match what you would see on a real device because, I mean, real Cisco iOS is like literally could be millions of lines of code because it's been written and added to and added to for decades, right? Mm -hmm. And when they create a simulated software, they can't match that. So they try to get as close as possible. But GNS3 as an emulator is a program where you actually use real Cisco software, you import it into this emulator, mm -hmm. and the emulator emulates the hardware. Yeah. So the software thinks yeah. it's actually operating inside of a Cisco router, but it's actually not. Yeah. And so now when you're typing your commands and you're issuing your debugs and your show commands and everything, it is actually the real stuff you would see on a real router. So mm -hmm. that's, that's my preference. If you don't have access to real equipment, yeah. I think that's the next best thing. Now, is it worthwhile nowadays to buy? Because I know, like, I had friends years ago that would just dump $5,000 and buying used equipment. Mm -hmm. Would you still recommend that? Are there... There's pros and cons to that. Um, the nice thing, short answer would probably be no. <laughs> um, you know, INE has, has rack rentals, and not to look like I'm just shamelessly doing a plug for INE, but mm -hmm. rack rentals are, are a great resource because, number one, you don't have to have that initial $5,000 or $10,000 upfront investment. Yeah. Um, and some people would say, and this would be a valid argument, they would say, well, technically I don't need that much mm -hmm. money. You know, I can use GNS3 for, to emulate my routers, and I'll do everything I need for routers. Yeah. And then I only need to buy three or four maybe real switches, connect it to my laptop, connect my emulated topology to my real topology, and I can do everything I need to do. And that's a valid argument. Yeah. That is a valid argument. Um, and that, that would probably be the best way to go, yeah. I, I think. Um, but if for some reason that doesn't work for somebody, for whatever reason they can't do that, yeah. then I think renting time on either INE's racks or somewhere is the next best thing because okay. you don't have to have that initial thousands of dollars up front. Um, you can just purchase a, a few rack rental tokens. I think you can get your initial set for just like uh, $100 or $200 or something like that. Hmm. And they'll give you dozens of hours on our racks. Yeah, okay. um, and we have lots of different racks you can choose from. Okay. So for example, you know, we have uh, CCNA and CCNP racks, mm -hmm. which are real hardware, real routers and real switches interconnected. It's back in our, um, our Nevada lab. Mm -hmm. And then we also have all the way up to CCIE labs, which are a lot of those are, are emulated software connected to stuff. So, and why I bring that up is because let's say that someone who's practicing for their CCNP, mm -hmm. I say, well, you know, I've got uh, two hours to kill and I like to practice some of the stuff I just made flashcards on they might log into our system, and I don't think this happens very often, but let's just say theoretically that the, all the NP racks are currently in use. Yeah. Well, there's IE racks. They can use their tokens to get time on the IE racks or the, the security racks or the data center racks if there's available. And yeah. they, you know, for example, if I get time on the CCIE security racks, that doesn't mean I have to do security labs. I can look at that and I can say, okay, I see five routers, two switches, and a couple of firewalls here. I'm not even gonna use the firewalls because I don't know what they do, but I can yeah. still use those routers and switches to practice the stuff I'm learning. Okay. Yeah. So 
I think that's I think rack rentals is a great choice because it saves you that upfront money. Okay. Uh, saves you the electric bill at home, which is going to be big. Right. Um, it's kind of funny because when I was preparing for my CCIE, I actually spent thousands of dollars on a rack at home, yeah. and that little office I had that rack in would typically get up to like 85, 90 degrees. <laughs> I mean, I'd just be dripping sweat because of all that <laughs> stuff running. Yeah. Um, so rack rentals, I think, is a, a superior alternative to that. Um, is that a normal thing? Is that just like that's INE does that and nobody else does? Are there competitors? In I think there's competitors place? out there. Yeah, I haven't so spent they're... a significant amount of time looking at who they are, but okay. I'm fairly certain there are other people that do that too. Okay. Yeah. okay, interesting. So then going through and like, like I say, just looking at your resume here. So one of the curious things is whenever you look at people's resumes, it's, you never know like under like skills and experience, mm -hmm. what is actual skills and experience and what is fluff? Mm -hmm. So you've got about a page of like skills and experience, you know, routing and MPLS and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. What's your requirement, like being a CCI professional for mm -hmm. putting a skill down and saying that you actually know it enough that you're going to say that you know it? Uh, for me personally, if I have studied something and I have created content on something, yeah. and I've created labs on something, then I have presented it to somebody else, yeah. I mark that down as a skill, because okay. I feel at that point I know it. Okay. Um, for other people out there that are not instructors, I would say if it's something that they have worked on to the point where, let's see how I'd say this, if you, for example, if you, if someone got, if someone sat next to you in front of a, a, win, a Microsoft server, they said, okay, here's how you set up a, a, an email program, and they walked you through it, and then you walked away, you never did it again. Yeah. I wouldn't consider that a skill to put yeah. on there. Um, yeah. it, it should be something, I guess here's a good criteria. Yeah. If you feel you can teach it to somebody else, yeah. you can list it as a skill. Okay. Yeah. That's how I'd quantify that. So let's say, let's try to figure out how you got to where you are now. So you're 20 years experience, you've got the CCI, we've talked about that. Mm -hmm. But then, okay, so we're in, we're in Durham, North Carolina now in 2016. And so in 1990, you get a Bachelor of Arts Theater degree mm -hmm. from University of California, San Diego. Mm -hmm. So how, how do you get from there, like how do you go from a theater degree of all things not even like computer science or <laughs> biology. Like, how do you get from like theater to like Cisco? What, what was going on? So, actually, the theater degree was not what I went into college for, oh, right, uh, okay. but it's what I ended up with. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. And by the time I graduated, I already knew that uh, that's not what I wanted to do. Yeah. Actually, UC San Diego, uh, their their degree was in theater. I was actually more interested in being like many people, a movie star or something like that, right? <laughs> uh, but that's not what UCSD did. It was all about the theater and plays and set design and lighting and costumes and stuff like that. So um, by the time I graduated, that was interesting and fun, yeah. but it wasn't something I really felt called to do. Hmm. So like a lot of people, I just did various jobs for the next five, six years, um, meaningless stuff that had no career potential. Yeah. Um, and then, at one point, uh, my mom, who was a realtor at the time, she was a realtor uh, in Silicon Valley, okay. San Jose, California. Right. And so she sold houses to a lot of, of big wigs from you know, Apple and IBM and Cisco and stuff like that. And one of the guys she sold a house to was, I think he was a director or like a controller or something, some fairly high level position within Cisco. Um, and I don't know exactly what transpired between the two of them, uh, but, <laughs> 
I imagine she somehow put into the conversation that she had a son who was looking for some sort of a career. Uh, and I had a lot of customer experience back then with like customer representative jobs and stuff like that. And she mentioned that to him. And he said, well, you know, I, I know this, um, this person over here who's a manager in customer service. Uh, and I think he just, it's so long ago, I don't remember if, if that person called me or if he gave my mom the number, but basically I got hooked up with that manager in customer service. Yeah. And I interviewed with that for them. And that's the job we were talking about earlier, the customer service job. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I lost track. What was your original question? <laughs> so, okay, so we're going from the theater major theater, to, yes, to yeah. CCIE. Yeah. yeah, so I didn't jump right into the technology. I basically yeah. just did meaningless jobs and I got a job at, at, at Cisco in customer service, yeah. never imagining I was gonna go into the technical field at all. Oh, okay. um, but while I was in customer service, you know, I learned of the systems engineer role. They had a, a job there called systems engineer. And at that time, my vision of that role yeah. was attractive to me. So, yeah, my vision of the role. So uh, I, I talked to my, my manager in customer service and I said, this is what I'd like to do. What do you think I should do? And she said, well, I know of a guy, there's a friend of mine who's a manager of the SEs. He wasn't in California, he was somewhere else. And she said, why don't you give him a call? Just talk to him. Okay. So I did. I, I called him on the phone. I explained to him, I said, look, I've got virtually no technical knowledge, yeah. no technical knowledge at all about networking at all. Yeah. I said, but I'd like to be an SE someday. What do you think I should do? Yeah. And it was his recommendation. He said, well, if you can get a job within the technical assistance center, taking troubleshooting tickets and cases, and if you can survive that for like a year and a half <laughs> or two years, you know, trial by fire, yeah. then you should be well positioned to be an SE after that. Okay. Uh, so I went back to my manager yeah. and I told her what this guy had told me. And she also knew of a manager within the TAC. Oh, okay. And so I went and sat down with him and, and basically I told him, look, you know, I, I will be upfront with you. I don't know anything about networking, um, but I've got the drive. I've got the ambition. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I can learn this stuff. If you just give me a chance, mm -hmm. I can learn this stuff. And he gave me a chance. So I got on his team and knowing nothing. Yeah. And at that point in time, Cisco's training was, was horrible. It basically didn't exist. <laughs> uh, so it was just, you know, throw like literally a stack of books this tall at you, read through those and pester your coworkers to death uh, and learn the stuff. And yeah. so that's how I ended up getting into the field. So then, okay, so, so you're doing customer support, whatever. Anybody can do customer support. Mm -hmm. And then you get into the troubleshooting then, but, but you don't know, it's not like you got your CCIE and then went into troubleshooting. You go into the troubleshooting directly out of customer support. Right. So like, what were you supporting for like the first month or two? Like what, it what was, questions you were know, you? Doing. It was it was a God-given opportunity. That's all I can say. I mean, <laughs> I mean, when I this guy I interviewed for yeah. uh, this manager, he was the manager of the uh, the dial access team. Okay. So basically, if a customer had any issue with like ISDN or mm -hmm. modems or you know uh, internet routing uh, stuff that service providers would typically use yeah. uh, to connect to their customers, if they had issues with Cisco equipment, they would go to the dial access team yeah. and within that team there was a sub team okay. on just one particular product it was a it was a real small router called a Cisco 700 series router they haven't yeah. sold it for decades probably yeah. but this was a real basic router that a home user would have at home yeah. to connect via ISDN okay. uh, to your service provider yeah. 
And so that sub team is what I was placed into. There was me and like maybe four other guys who dealt just with that particular product. Yeah. So I was really blessed in the fact that when I got into a team, I didn't have, have to learn all these different products and all these different technologies. I was okay. narrowly focused on just this one product yeah. that did a certain subset of stuff. Okay. And then once I mastered that, then I started branching off to the other products that the team handled. So I still had access to the queue, so I would see all the cases that would come in, yeah. but only if a case said Cisco 700 somewhere in the title of it or something, mm -hmm. those were the ones I could pull from. That's but the other stuff I wouldn't. But then once I learned that, mm -hmm. I started sort of cherry picking some of the other cases, and that's how I learned all the other technology and started branching out. So what did you do? So this would be, when did you get into this? So what, is this like 90s no, Yeah, like 98, I think. 99. So, like, what a lot of people don't realize is you go back in the late 90s and you weren't dealing with Google and a lot of things you're dealing with now. Mm -hmm. What was your, uh, what, was, what was it called, the knowledge-based system? Like, what were you using Lycos or something? Or, like, did they have their own internal knowledge base? It was base, pretty much or? their own internal knowledge base. I yeah. mean, they, uh, they had databases that had all the specifications in it. Yeah. So if you wanted to grab a particular RFC, if you wanted to grab a particular IEEE document, or uh, an ITU document, they were all there. Yeah. And of course, you know, Cisco had more documents that their own authors and their own engineers had written than any other company, so you had access to that. I uh, had access to the functional specifications of documents, so I could actually see when they developed the stuff what their yeah. design objectives were. I could see some of the hidden commands that customers didn't know that you could use. But it was all pretty much basically internal stuff. But I mean, you're talking about that kind of stuff. You're not talking about like forums where you can just, you can paste the question and boop, oh, here's the answer. No, right. no, when I had a question, I had to literally <laughs> get up, go over, oh, brutal. look a guy in the eyes who was talking to his customer, see him go, oh, it's Keith again, yeah, and yeah, wait for yeah, him yeah. to put down the phone so I could pester him with a question. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess that's one thing with, with keeping like new people in this. I mean, did you ever think about giving up? Because I mean, like, you know, when you're in Cisco and you're doing that, especially coming from that, like now you're CCIE, but then, like, did you ever think, like, ah, screw this, I want to do something else? Maybe theater wasn't so bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's, that's one of the reasons why I moved out of the TAC into the network consulting engineer, yeah. um, because at a certain point it felt sort of like flipping burgers. It was like, mm -hmm. okay, every single day I'm going to take five to six different cases to, from five to six different customers. Um, just, and it just felt, you know, after a year and a half or so of that, I was like, I, I'm just done taking these troubleshooting cases. And it's always going to be confined to my particular TAC team. Yeah. Of course, I can move to a different TAC team if I wanted to. But after a point, I said, you know what, I, I want to learn a little bit more about why people choose these technologies. You know, how, why they decide to implement this in their company. Yeah. And how these technologies that I've been working on merge with and, and work with some of the other technologies that the other TAC teams are doing. So that's why I went into the network consulting engineer role. Okay. Uh, because that role, you had like two or three companies that were dedicated to you. Yeah. And they could call you up or email you about literally anything. <laughs> uh, on one day, they might give you a LAN switching design and they say, mm -hmm. can you spy anything here that might be problematic? Huh. Uh, another day, they might send you something from their SNMP server and they mm -hmm. might ask you, what, what's this syslog mean here? Okay. So it could be anything. Um, so for that, I got a, a broad range of stuff I could look at and work with, but it does get, I, I think it's like any profession that's, that's growing. You know, I, I can imagine, for example, you know, um, a lawyer, right? You get your bar, bar degree, you know, whatever, you pass the bar exam, you get your, your legal degree, but there's always new laws coming out all the time, right? And, and I imagine that even for them at a certain point, it's like, oh man, 
I'm just tired of having to log onto this page every day just to see if something new is there and have to memorize that. And yeah, sometimes there's that feeling with networking technologies. It's like, it's just like there's, it's never going to end. You yeah, know, it's, yeah. you, sometimes I look at like these Star Trek shows and I think, what knowledge must, you know, Scotty have had to work on the Enterprise, right? Yeah, to yeah. get to that level. It, sometimes it feels like that's where we're headed to this yeah. point where the human brain is not going to be enough. We're going to have to somehow network our brains together so we can even take foundational jobs. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so you went customer support, then you went to TAC, and then you went to what's this one? Uh, it was called Advanced Services at that point in time. The, the job was a network consulting engineer. Network yeah. consultant. And then where did you go after that then? Then I went to training. I went to. Uh, so so that, that last one, that's where you got your CCIE or you got your CCIE? In the TAC. At the yeah. TAC. Okay. And it was right. when I was an NCE that I got my CCNA because I was teaching that other group of non technical folks. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then you go there and then you go to be an instructor. Right. And so what was your job as an instructor for Cisco? Was that internal work or it was, was that you were teaching? It was. Okay. Um, so uh, once again, to bring my sister back into the yeah. fold here. So while I was an, an NCE and now I'd been teaching the CCNA level stuff, um, back in San Jose, uh, she had been in a Bible study with a bunch of people. And one of the guys in that study was, he was just starting a new training team for the TAC because the TAC had really had no formal training team before this. And so he was starting one. Yeah. And she had told him that I was teaching CCNA, that I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. He mentioned to her, hey, I'm actually building this new team. I'm going to need instructors for it. Have him call me. Mm -hmm. So I called him up, and I was his very first instructor on the team. And oh. so the, the very first course that we had was this monstrous call, course called the Cisco Internetworking Bootcamp. It was for brand new tech engineers. It was a three-week course, um, you know, 40, 50 hours a week for three weeks where we would just hit them every single day with different technologies, teach it to them, have them do labs on it. And then in theory, by the time the three weeks was over, they knew all this stuff and they'd be more productive in their tech team. Okay, yeah. So that was the first, uh, the very first course, technical course I had ever taught. Well, other than the CCA stuff I sort of came up with, yeah. So then, so was it your decision to come out here to the Durham-Raleigh area, or was this just simply where the job was? Like, did you want to move here, or was this, this is where the job was, so you had to move? Uh, both, actually. Okay. Yeah. So, so I was in the TAC, uh, and I was approaching, I think, a year and a half mark or so in the TAC, and I was getting tired of it. Yeah. Um, and, and I discovered that there was just the role of network consulting engineer. I sort of found that. And they had that both in San Jose and in RTP. But that time I was sort of growing disenchanted with the whole Bay Area, Silicon mm. Valley scene. I just, it wasn't the lifestyle that I really liked. Uh, and my wife didn't either, my ex-wife. And mm. so I said, hey, why don't we fly out to North Carolina? Hmm. I don't remember if I took PTO or if it was a working vacation, but let's fly out there and I'll just have an informational interview with one of these network consulting engineer managers just to find out a little bit more about what the job really is and what the expectations are. Mm -hmm. So when I flew to Raleigh, I wasn't actually in my mind interviewing. I just wanted to find out some more about the job mm -hmm. and what their teams were like. So I sat down with, with the manager there, uh, but it turned into an interview. And by the time it was done, he said, hey, if you want the job, uh, we'd love to have you and Cisco will pay for you to move out to Raleigh. Oh, and so that's how I ended up out here. So how big is their, is their office or their, their, their presence here in the area? It's pretty large. Um, now, I left them in, in 2013, okay. but at that point in time, I think they had about 14 or 15 buildings 
in RTP. Really? Each building, uh, a minimum of two stories. Some of them are, I think, as tall as four or five stories. Hmm. Um, uh, I think they had elite, you know, somewhere between six to 10,000 employees or something like that out mm-hmm. here. It was, it was pretty large. Do you know? Do you know why they they they're they're such a big presence here? Like, is there something in particular that that drew them? Or, I don't know what originally had them come out here. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Oh, oh. All right. So you're an instructor then. So you're an instructor for a while with them, right? Mm-hmm. So from like 2000 ish till 2013. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Um, like, is there anything interesting that they do, like with their instructor program? Was there anything curious? Is it just pretty much you're just an instructor for 13 years? Yeah, um, they, you know, every instructor is different. Um, And within Cisco, they don't have just one training organization. They've got lots of training organizations. You know, my particular training team was focused primarily on the TAC. Uh, But there were other training teams for the network consulting engineers. There was other training teams for human resources and payroll and stuff like that. Training Mm -hmm. teams for the SEs and the account managers. So within my particular training team, sort of what the expectation was, if you're a new instructor on what was called TAC training at that point in time, the expectation was you should go into the TAC, sit with them during their team meetings, talk to them, talk to their managers, and find out what their needs are. Uh, Find out what technologies are coming out, or or basically just find out what their needs are. Go back and create material on that. And if you don't know it yourself, partner with one of those guys to get the material, and then start teaching it, and then rinse and repeat. Keep doing that. But... It doesn't take too long of doing that before you start just sort of knowing what they need. There, there starts to be common trends that you know, okay, when, when new people come into the TAC, you know they will always need these 10 or 15 bullet points consistently. Yeah. So that's what I started doing is I started creating boot camps on these types of things. Like um, I think the first boot camp I created was a one week land switching boot camp. <laughs> for the land switching tack, um, which was very intense. And I developed another one week advanced land switching. And then I developed, and I started thinking, okay, well, what else am I interested in? I'm interested in routing protocols. So then I developed a one week routing protocols bootcamp. So for me personally, it was sort of like my manager knew that when I created something, it would be popular. It would draw engineers to it. He knew that the evaluation scores I got were consistently high. So he, he sort of had faith in me that, hey, if, if Keith comes to me and he wants to develop a course, let him roll with it. Yeah. And so that's, that's what I did. For, so for 13 years, I was, you know, every few months developing these new boot camps. Um, and then they started, you know, they brought me in. They had a, like a CCNA and a CCNP TV show, <laughs> which was kind of interesting, <laughs> where I would go in and sort of like in this format, I, I would sit down with someone, but we talk technical stuff about like a particular topic. Yeah. And so I did that a little bit. Uh, so, but that's what my life was like as an instructor there. Um, so when you're, when you're creating these new boot camps and everything, mm-hmm. do you feel like you have to be an expert on the subject? Or you just have to, you just have to know enough to teach the subject. <laughs> um, I try to anticipate the questions that might hit me. Yeah. And so, yeah, a lot of times I do feel like I have to be an expert on the subject. Okay. Like for example, the, the latest class I did was on GNS3 that we yeah. talked about earlier. Yeah. And previously I had had no knowledge of GNS3 because yeah. I've always been privileged that I had access to real equipment, okay. whether it be at Cisco or here at INE. Yeah. And I've always been of the mindset of, you know, hey, if, if I need to create labs for myself, 
might as well use the real equipment since I have access to it. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people don't have that access, so I never really felt the need to learn GNS3, even though I knew it was intensely popular out yeah. there. Okay. Um, and then um, INE Management came to me and they said, hey, you know, GNS3 would like us to develop a series of videos, training videos for them. Okay. Would you want to do it? And I said, sure, because I know it's real popular out there and I frequently get questions on it that I haven't been able to answer because I don't have any experience with it. So I said, sure. And so, yeah, in, in the course of doing that, I felt sort of compelled like I had to be an expert in it. Now, but at the very beginning, and I think this is the critical thing to prevent from becoming too overwhelmed as a course developer. When you're given an objective at the beginning, it's very important to define the clear boundaries of that objective. Like for example, if someone came up and said, hey, I want you to teach someone how to drive a car. Well, that could be huge. Are we talking about cars in America, cars in Europe? Are we talking about sports cars, sedan, you know? So it's very important to get clear ideas as to what the objective is of the training. So for example, with GNS3, I had access to some documentation and books on it and stuff, and I I realized that the GNS3 not only could incorporate Cisco software, but also software from other vendors as well, like Juniper and and other stuff that I had no knowledge of whatsoever. So as I was looking at that, I was realizing, okay, well, I think I have the capability of learning this Juniper stuff and this other stuff, but not if you want me to create a course within three, four weeks, not going to happen. So that's where INE Management and myself, we sat down, I said, okay, look, here's the the stuff that GNS3 does that I think I could do pretty quickly because it's Cisco stuff and I know Cisco stuff. And so when that was, when those boundaries were delineated at the beginning, then I just got heads down on GNS3 and fortunately I had access to the actual developers of the software on like a, a chat. Yeah. And so I would frequently ping them with questions. Um, and by the time I got to teaching it, yeah. I felt like within this boundary that I had set, I was an expert. It was actually kind of funny because during the, at the end of the course, a couple of the, the developers said, you said you taught some stuff that even we didn't know. There was a particular aspect of GNS3 that it could do this thing yeah. that they didn't even know it could do, which was kind of funny for them to say that. So with INE or with Cisco, when you set boundaries, did you find management ever pushed those boundaries a little bit? I mean, did you, did you say it and then they went, yeah, fine, whatever? Or did they ever say, no, we need you to go a little, like, was, was there any tension there or was it? Sometimes there is. Yeah, yeah sure, yeah. sometimes there is. But, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, if you, if as a, as a course developer, if you commit to something that in the back of your mind you know you can't make the timelines on, yeah. you're not doing yourself any service and you're not doing your company any service. Because yeah. you yeah. know that you're either going to create an inferior product, yeah. but in some way it's not going to meet their expectations. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's critical that, that everybody has the same expectations going into a project. If there's a little bit of pushback at the beginning, well, you just work through it. You know, if that means stretching out the timeline as far as how long it's going to take to create something, that yeah. might be the solution. But yeah, that always happens. So then you were there, and so then what got you after that long in 2013? What finally got you to jump ship then? Was it mm. just time period? Was it a better offer? Um, it was a bunch of things. Yeah. So when I started in TAC training, it was all instructor-led training, yeah. where I would stand up in front of a classroom of people and teach them help them with their labs and stuff like that. And so it was all like that. And, um, and there'd be a little bit of travel, but it was primarily in the United States, primarily in San Jose, a little bit in RTP or vice versa. Then as Cisco started moving more towards the virtual model mm-hmm. and they started integrating telepresence and then WebEx, 
they, they started having the mindset, and I don't blame them for this, they started saying, hey look, why should we spend $3,000 to send Keith to Russia for a week to teach a class when we can put him in an office in front of a camera, have him come in at nine o'clock at night, teach till four in the morning and oh. teach their time zone <laughs> and doesn't cost us anything. <laughs> so it started shifting where, you know, it started being 80% live instruction, 20% in front of the camera. And by the time I left in 2013, I was lucky if I was in front of a live class once every six months, if that. It was almost all in front of a camera. Huh. And at least 50% of that time yeah. were those horrible hours where I'd have to teach in China's local time zone or India's local time zone. Wow. And you do that for so long, it's like, I'm, I'm tired of driving home at four o'clock in the morning. It's hard yeah. to, after, after the second day, it's kind of hard to focus on what you're teaching at, at 2 a.m. Yeah. Um, there's very little feedback. So if I was teaching via WebEx, for example, yeah. I'd be just looking at my laptop. I wouldn't see my learners. I would ask them a question, <laughs> nothing would come back. Oh, weird. They wouldn't weird. ask me any questions, and I'd be left wondering, are they asleep? Are they even still there? Oh, uh, so that, you know, that takes all the incentive out of teaching. Huh, yeah. uh, so that was, the, that was one of the big reasons why I left. Yeah, that is so weird. So did you get any kind of like, I mean, because one nice thing is, you know, once you've been doing this stuff for a decade, you stop normally having to do these crap hours. Did you get any benefits, any salary increase, any... That was the other thing, is that, you know, Cisco is, is sort of like the government, in that yeah. every job has a grade level. Huh. Every grade level has a minimum, a midpoint, and a maximum salary. Yeah. And the way Cisco has worked since time began was that management's goal is to get you to that midpoint. But then once you're at the midpoint, you basically have to swallow hot coals in order to get above <laughs> that. And if you start getting towards the top, yeah. then at that point it's sort of like, okay, you better find another job. Uh, Dang, they they really? don't want people getting towards that upper end. Really, Cisco doesn't. Yeah, because they really? can hire, they can replace you with somebody new at the low end and save money. Um, so cool. for me, because I had been in training for so long, yeah. my, I was pretty much at the upper grade point level. I, I couldn't go any higher in grade levels without becoming a manager, and yeah. management wasn't an interest in me. Yeah. And at the grade level I was at, I was sort of like, close to the top in salary. Yeah. So I knew that if I stayed there for another five, 10, 15 years, I would be making exactly the same amount of money. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. and I had an ex-wife, still do, who expects alimony. So uh, <laughs> oh, well, <there laughs> so I needed go. more money. Yeah, yeah, so. Yeah, okay. yeah. So then you went over, so you went to Ruckus Wireless then mm -hmm. after Cisco. So what got you to go to Ruckus Wireless? Well, in the time that I was in the training organization for you know, those 12 or 13 years, I probably yeah. saw or had like five or six different managers okay. come in and come out for various reasons. Um, a lot of times they were promoted to other jobs. Yeah. And the last manager who I had um, when I was at Cisco was a great manager. <laughs> I mean, he, he let me do whatever I wanted to. He, he was very good with encouraging words. Um, and he just, I felt he was very supportive and just a, a, a great guy, real yeah. nice to talk to. I didn't feel threatened by him at all in any way, shape, or form. Mm. And then he left Cisco, uh, not under good circumstances, <laughs> and he went to Ruckus yeah. to yeah, yeah, yeah. become the manager of their new training team because they didn't have one. Okay. And he basically, and he and I were talking, and I was sort of lamenting to him that, you know, I'm getting kind of tired of these late nights, uh, getting kind of tired of the fact that I'm never going to make any more money. And he said, hey, <laughs> Come over to me. Join my team. So I just sort of, you know, six months after he left, I followed him over to Ruckus. Okay. Yeah. And so what did you do at Ruckus then? You did the internal training there? Yeah. So, well, 
No, actually, it's, it's actually just the opposite. So at, at Ruckus, at that point, that wasn't that long ago, they, they were still a fairly small company in terms in comparison to Cisco. I think they had like 900 employees or something. Um, but their internal employees didn't really have any training. Uh, this training organization was all for customers and resellers and partners and stuff uh, to train them on the equipment and, and how it works so they could support the end user. Okay. So, so you went in a really short period of time from a company with tens of thousands of employees, like household name, to one, about a thousand employees, to one uh, 30 40, employees. 30 <laughs> yeah. employees. So what have, what, have you found anything difficult in that transition, coming to some place that's like literally smaller than a department in Cisco? In that regard, <laughs> I'm thankful for my ruckus experience. Right. Um, I think if I had gone directly from the, the monolith of Cisco directly to here, yeah. that would have been a huge culture shock. Okay. But ruckus was, like you said, it was sort of like in the middle. Yeah. And I had gone from at Cisco having access to all this stuff. Yeah. And if I didn't know where a particular document was, I could ask somebody. Um, to where at Ruckus, it was sort of like, okay, I had to start fending for myself a little bit more. Okay. I had to start getting a little bit more aggressive in pursuing the answers and following up with people after I sent them three, four emails and they didn't reply. Yeah. Um, and, so, and so by the time I got here, the culture shock wasn't as huge. Um, so short answer is that ruckus was a good intermediary step for me for yeah. that. So it was good to have something in the yeah. middle. Yeah. yeah. What, what would you th think like would have been like the big problem? Like just, just smallness? I mean like what, like I guess like day to day, what's mm -hmm. different being in a company this small versus a larger company? Is there anything like day to day stuff? Day to day? Not for me, really. Yeah. I, I can't speak for the other positions here at yeah. INE, but day-to-day, uh, -day, the way I do my job and what I do here is pretty much what I did at Cisco. Okay. Um, so it's really not any different. Yeah. Um, I guess just some of the high-level differences are, you know, at, at Cisco as an employee, at least once a quarter, yeah. frequently more often than that, there will be company meetings or something where the upper level VPs or even the CEO will say, okay, here's our vision. You know, here's, we want to break into video and we've acquired this company and here's the products that we acquired and this is sort of what we want to do. And so as you're at Cisco, you sort of know what direction they're moving in. Yeah. And if a particular technology is fading out, you sort of know why, yeah. because management has sort of set the expectation of, you know, that's sort of the path we're moving towards here. In a smaller company, you don't necessarily have that kind of visibility okay. as far as what the long-term vision is. Um, and so uh, that's, a, that's a fairly significant change. Now with like a large company like Cisco, even though by the time you left it wasn't worth much, like you do get things like stock options and all that. And if you went to a startup company, you'll get some type of equity. Now as I understand, INE is a private company. Mm -hmm. Is, so in something like this, are there like profit sharing or like is there any of that kind of equity? If there is, I'm not aware of it. <laughs> so you just get a pure salary. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. So you think about that when you come in. Mm -hmm. okay. That's mm -hmm. interesting. But you know, the, what made that less painful for me? Yeah. You know, certainly if, if I had made the transition from Cisco to INE back in the day when Cisco stock was doubling and tripling and splitting, <laughs> it would have been like, 
what? I'm not going to get anything like that. Yeah. But by the time I left Cisco, like you said, the stock I had, most of it was underwater. It was worthless, would never be worth anything. Yeah. Um, and you know, I hate to say this again, but what little stock I had, I knew if I cashed it out, half of it would have to go to somebody else back in California. <laughs> so it's sort of like, you know, that was not really much of anything anymore. So leaving that behind and going to a company that didn't offer that was like, okay, you know, not really a big deal. Because yeah. in the grand scheme of things, me personally, I think I would rather have a larger paycheck yeah. than a smaller paycheck and gamble on things like stock options and restricted stock. Because you don't, at the end of the day, and, and bonuses and stuff, because at the end of the day, that stuff, you don't know if it's gonna happen or not. Hmm. If it does happen, you don't know how big it's gonna be. Yeah. And I'm not the gambling type. So yeah. I'd, I'd rather have a larger salary and none of that other stuff. Have you ever thought about working with, like, I guess Ruckus had kind of leveled out. But have you ever thought about like being with a, a faster growing company? Because it seems like I and E is pretty like it's, it's growing. Don't get me mm -hmm. wrong; it seems like it's growing, but it's not. I don't. I don't expect to come back in a year, and you guys mm -hmm. have a thousand employees. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> so I mean, do you, do you miss anything about like not 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 being a company that might be growing to that extent, or you're just kind of happy? happy doing if if I was the type of person who really liked being on the cutting edge of things, yeah. that would probably be a concern. Okay. But like we talked about earlier. The, the core foundational knowledge of networking is so vast yeah. that has not changed and probably will never change. And there's so much in there that still pockets of stuff that I do not know yeah. that whether I'm working in a company that's like this or like this or like this, yeah. if this is where I am in this core area, it, it doesn't really matter that much. So you've been in doing instruction now, one form or another for years, right? So somewhere along the line of 15 years. Mm -hmm. So, what do you kind of see like your next decade? Do you, I mean, do you think you're more or less going to do this to retirement? Because you know that's what a lot of people don't realize when they're when they're youngins is that's why I always say is when people say well like why 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 don't I fix computers anymore? It's like mm -hmm. I had my I had my twenty years mm -hmm. and it gets tiring after a while. Yeah. Do you see your career moving like to management or to something else, or you like instruction and you'll just keep plugging along with different types of instruction? I have learned over the years that life is completely and utterly unpredictable. Um, so I live squarely day by day. Um, I have no idea what I'll be doing next year or five or 10 years. Um, so I'm happy and content with what I'm doing now. Yeah. So I don't really have an answer for that. Um, other, other than what you know is on your plate. I mean, are you doing any kind of like general preparations? You know, like like a lot of people, like they don't want they don't want to be in management now, but they'll they'll start they'll start their MBA so mm -hmm. that in a decade they can go into management. Is there mm -hmm. is there any hedging or is there anything that, that you're doing like for the future at all? No? I don't really have the time to do that because mm -hmm. for the the almost two years that I've been here at yeah. uh, at I and E, the the model of my position has been sort of like. Um, learn, it's been basically the same sort of life cycle over a, of about roughly two weeks, yeah. learn some new technology, um, develop content on it, yeah. teach it in front of the camera, and then rinse and repeat. Okay, yeah. uh, and so at that pace, there really hasn't been any extra time to think about what else could I be learning or doing to prepare for any future. <laughs> yeah. And then overall, so you've been in, in this Durham, North Carolina area for mm -hmm. a while now. 
Um, how do you think it? How do you think it holds up compared to the rest of the country? Like obviously, you didn't like Silicon Valley anymore, mm -hmm. but you know Boston or Austin or Seattle. I haven't ever... really lived in those places, so okay. uh, um, I think it's a slower pace here. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I've noticed in some of those other, you know, because I I, used, I would travel to Boston stuff to teach classes sometimes, but it would seem like certainly when you compare the Silicon Valley to here, yeah. in the Silicon Valley, people just seem more stressed in general. Yeah. They're very concerned yeah. about their future and their financial future. Um, and they're very concerned about their job security. Uh, and, and that manifests itself in, well, it's not a pleasant experience to be on the road, <laughs> to be driving. Um, people, a lot of times, at least in the tech industry, yeah. A lot of conversation will be about, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I just bought the second house here and I'm renting it out as an, as an investment or I've got this IRA or this 401k going, this mutual fund, or mm -hmm. I just bought this boat. It's, it's a lot of things and material stuff. Yeah. Out here, I don't hear as much of that. Hmm. Um, I don't know if that means it's not on people's minds or not, but mm -hmm. it just seems to be a much more relaxed atmosphere in North Carolina. And so I guess kind of starting to wrap up then. So, so you essentially more or less are one of these people that started at the equivalent of the mailroom, worked your way up to CCIE. Mm -hmm. In the modern world, not necessarily CCIE in Cisco, mm -hmm. but generally in technology, do you still believe that's, that's a viable way to go? Like, can you start as a peon and become the equivalent of a CCIE and whatever? Um, Yes. yes. Uh, it's a long road, I think, for most people. Yeah. Um, a lot of frustrations that I hear on like our online communities and the people email me and stuff is that they don't have any networking experience. Uh, yeah. Maybe their experience has solely been desktop support yeah. or you know, who knows what else, but not networking. Yeah. And they want to get into the networking field, yeah. but they hear the same messaging. If you don't have experience, you can't get in the field. Yeah, and yet, yeah. if you can't get in the field, how do you get the experience? <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, my, my advice, and, and other people on our online communities and stuff typically give the same advice as well, is that if this is truly your passion, if, this is, if working and networking is something that you really want to do, yeah. um, prepare yourself. It's going to be a process of years yeah. to get there. Yeah. Not decades, but years. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the, typically we say somehow Ideally, start with where you are. Even if you're working in a grocery store, almost yeah. every company these days has some kind of network. Right. It might just be a router and a switch, but they have something. Yeah. So typically, the recommendation is whatever network your company currently has, get a hold of the person who manages that network. It might be someone in-house. Yeah. Maybe it's farmed out to somebody else, but try to see if you can be with them when they change it. Try to see if, if you can learn more about just what you have. Okay. And then if that doesn't work, try to move to another company. Maybe you'll be in a customer service role, maybe you'll be in a marketing role, but move to another company that does have a larger network of their own. Yeah. But try to get your feet in there, and even though it's not technically your job to be the network admin or the network engineer, yeah. try to partner up with those people so you can get some experience. And be prepared that in the evenings on the weekends, you should have that lab time with INE rack rentals or whatever. You should be getting your certifications and studying. And so hopefully, after like you know two, three years of that, yeah. you'll be at the point where you can interview for a job and you can say, look, I've got my CCNP, maybe even my CCIE, but I've definitely got my CCNP, <laughs> yeah. and I've worked at these companies, 
in these companies, even though my role may have been marketing or payroll, this is what I did in the network. I was allowed to make this change. I implemented, along with the network engineer, I implemented this protocol. Yeah. So I actually have a little bit of hands-on experience. And that should get you into the door as a beginning network engineer or admin. So it's interesting you bring up at least the CCMP because mm -hmm. there's a little internal joke about the CCNA within my little YouTube world. If somebody goes out and just gets a CCNA, mm -hmm. is there much likelihood they will get a job that can pay the bills? Not without demonstrating that they know something. Okay. Uh, no one's gonna, I, I don't think, I think there's very few companies out there that would take it on faith yeah. that just because you have a CCNA, you can actually do CCNA level skills. Okay. Um, I would say you, if you can get a job with just a CCNA, expect that during the interview, they will test you. Okay. They'll ask you verbal questions on it to see if you really know what you know. Uh, there are some companies out there that might actually wheel in a little mini rack yeah. and say, okay, show me how you configure RIP. Show me how you configure OSPF. Mm -hmm. um, and if you can, even if they don't do that stuff, yeah. preemptively demonstrate it. Come in with like your own little YouTube video that you did of yourself oh configuring OSPF. <laughs> Come in with you know uh, 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 something you wrote uh, a document on how you know BGP updates work. You know, but something that you can show them that says, "Look, it's not just an acronym on my resume. Yeah. I can actually prove to you that I know stuff." Okay. So as far as education and training and all that is concerned, um, you know, there's a whole certification versus college education. Mm -hmm. If you had to put money somewhere, again, there's, there's no right or wrong answer, obviously. Mm -hmm. Where would you put your, if you had a kid who wanted to get into technology, mm -hmm. would you say certification, and you're gonna pay for your kids, mm -hmm. what would you wanna pay for? Would you wanna pay for certification or education? I would say certification. Really? So yeah, you know, okay, you know yeah. because while college is great, you know, at the end of the day, in order to get that, just the bachelor's degree, yeah. what are you really gonna do with the sociology classes you took? with the humanities classes, the literature classes, the, you know, the, the American history. I mean, it's, it's all great to know, yep. but how's that gonna get you to a job? And how is an employer gonna see that as being relevant to their company? Yeah. Whereas certifications are targeted. Hmm. And by the time you get a certification, you can prove that you can actually do what the employer wants you to do. Hmm. So I, I personally think that the wave of the future is that four-year degrees are gonna start going away, yeah. and you're gonna see a lot more specialized colleges and specialized fields. And then I guess the final thing then, so again, if you had a kid starting out now, there's a whole bunch, especially even in the networking world, because we got IoT coming out, we got software-defined networking, whenever they figure mm -hmm. out what they're doing with that. Yeah. What, what's like the super sexy? Again, you gotta put your money somewhere. Mm -hmm. What would you, fo what, do you what do you think is, some, if somebody focuses on one particular aspect of networking, then that's, that would be the best bet for the next five years, 10 years? Um, I would say it's a toss-up between either data center technologies or security mm. technologies. Yeah, okay. yeah. So not all of like, like what about like with software-defined networking and all that? Do you think that's still, is that just still a lot of buzzwords then? Yeah, it, at, at this point in time, it's still rather vague. Yeah. And I don't think it's at the point yet where you could say, okay, if you take this, these series of classes, do these series of labs, and get this certification, you will be an SDN expert. Yeah. It's getting there, but I don't think it's quite there yet. Okay. Yeah. And then the final question, because everybody always asks this, IPv6, when will that be standard? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, 
That's a good question. Um, a good, yeah. I know that you know when I first started, when it first came out, you know, over 20 years ago, it was like Psh, whatever. You know, we got so much IPv4, we'll never need it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. here we are in 2016, and uh, the regional internet registries that allocate IPv4, a lot of them have now said we're tapped out. Yeah, it's yeah, done. Yeah. So in in a lot of countries now, the only remaining IPv4 networks are available are actually held by the service provider, by your Comcast, your Time Warner Cable, your Sprint. Um, and so that's going to be running out. Yeah. Um, so I would say that now, when are we going to see that most networks are only IPv6 and not IPv4? That's yeah. probably 15, 20 years, if not more. Really? Yeah. Still, you think yeah. So? Uh-huh. But I, I, I think that within the next five years, certainly, you're going to see a lot of companies that's half and half. Really? Because as companies grow, as yeah. they get more of an internet presence here and here and here, they're yeah. going to have no choice but to get IPv6 because they won't be able to get IPv4 addresses. Yeah. Well, that works. So, okay, well, uh, that was our, our interview here with, uh, with Keith Bogart, somebody with 20 years experience, CCIE, worked his way up from essentially, like I say, essentially from the mailroom up to that CCIE level. So this, this is the real story, as, as I tell everybody. Um, you know, people want all of these, uh, these step-by-step instructions on how to get somewhere. They're all like, Eli, give me step one, step two, step three. And uh, the good thing with doing these interviews is I can show that there is no step one, step two, step three. You just go, and every day you try to do something a little bit harder, and after 20 years, that becomes something very impressive. Yeah. So I enjoyed doing this, uh, this interview, and I hope it was useful for you guys.